Today's episode is brought to you by E.J. Coe's much-anticipated debut novel, The Liberators, an elegantly wrought family saga of memory, trauma, and empathy, and a stunning testament to the consequences and fortunes of inheritance. Spanning two continents and four generations, The Liberators exquisitely captures two Korean families forever changed by fateful decisions made in love and war. Says Tayari Jones, Spare, beautiful, and richly layered, The Liberators is dazzling. Adds Ed Park, You won't know what hit you until the final perfect image. The Liberators is available now from Tin House. And I'll just add that E.J. Coe's appearance on Between the Covers for her memoir, The Magical Language of Others, that is also very much a book about language and translation, is one I'd point people to if you're looking for where to go next in the archive. In that spirit, today's guest, Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore, also has two not-to-be-missed episodes in the archives. Her first appearance on the podcast for her book, Sketch to See, a conversation that is a great compliment to today's conversation because both the book and conversation couldn't be more different than the book and conversation we have today. But also Matilda's craft talk, writing on your own terms. That talk is the most listened to Tin House Live episode ever. And for good reason. If you need a boost for your writing or art making practice, or a boost to your weathering of the world, or maybe you don't think you need a boost, but I suspect if you listen, you'll realize that you did. Today's conversation about Matilda's latest book, The Remarkable Touching the Art, as you'll soon see, gives us an opportunity to talk about so many things about art, politics, race, gender, but most of all, I think about love and how love can be a place of contradiction and nuance, a place of loss and grief at the same time as it's a place of possibility. I won't say more now other than to tell you that similar to last time Matilda was on the show and read for the bonus audio archive, a chapter of their forthcoming book, the book that ultimately became The Freezer Door. This time, Matilda also contributes a reading to the bonus audio of a book not yet published, the first chapter of their forthcoming book, Terry Dactyl. That joins an incredible wealth of material from readings, craft talks, long-form conversations with translators, and much more in the bonus audio archive which is only one possible thing to choose from when you join the Between the Covers community. One lucky new listener supporter could choose four signed copies of Matilda's past books, her iconic memoir, The End of San Francisco, two of her novels, Pulling Taffy, which we talk about today, and So Many Ways to Sleep Badly, and the anthology she edited, Tricks and Treats, Sex workers write about their clients. Or you could choose the Tin House Early Readership Subscription, receiving 12 books over the course of a year 
months before they're available to the general public. And every supporter at any level of support receives the resource-rich email with each episode and can join our collective brainstorm of who to invite on the show going forward. You can check it all out and more at patreon.com slash between the covers. And now for today's episode with Matilda Bernstein Sycamore. morning and welcome to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's guest is writer and editor Matilda Bernstein Sycamore, described by Howard Zinn as startlingly bold and provocative. Sycamore is the author of both novels and memoirs and the editor of many nonfiction anthologies. Her memoir, The End of San Francisco, won the Lambda Literary Award for Transgender Nonfiction, and her anthology, Why Are Faggots So Afraid of Faggots? Flaming Challenges to Masculinity, Objectification, and the Desire to Conform, was an American Library Association Stonewall honor book. Her novels include So Many Ways to Sleep Badly and Pulling Taffy, and her nonfiction anthologies include Nobody Passes, Rejecting the Rules of Gender and Conformity, That's Revolting, Queer Strategies for Resisting Assimilation, Dangerous Families, Queer Writing on Surviving, and Tricks and Treats, Sex Workers Write About Their Clients. Sycamore has written for the San Francisco Chronicle, Bomb, Book Forum, The New York Times, New Inquiry, Los Angeles Review of Books, Truth Out, Utney Reader, Bitch, and Book Slut, and for 10 years was the reviews editor and columnist for the feminist magazine Makeshift, and now writes the Sparks column for the Anarchist Review of Books. In the 90s, Sycamore was active in both Act Up and Fed Up Queers, hosted the first Gay Shame event in New York, and was one of the principal organizers of Gay Shame in San Francisco. In 2018, she co-organized a queer anti-militarism town hall for trans liberation, not U.S. invasion. She contributed to Against Equality, Queer Critiques of Gay Marriage, and wrote the introduction to Against Equality, Queer Revolution, Not Mere Inclusion. And in 2008, the Etney Reader named Sycamore one of the 50 visionaries who are changing the world. The last time Matilda was on the show was for her book, Sketch to See, a book NPR picked as one of the best books of 2018, of which Sarah Schulman says, if Sketch to See doesn't become a classic, we are doomed. A lesson in how to write, how to remember, how to grapple with history. Since then, she has edited the anthology Between Certain Death and a Possible Future, Queer Writing on Growing Up in the AIDS Crisis, named one of Book Riot's 100 Most Influential Queer Books of All Time. And also her memoir, 
or possibly lyric essay, The Freezer Door, of which Maggie Nelson says, In a happy paradox common to great literature, it's a book about not belonging that made me feel deeply less alone. And Wayne Kostenbaum adds, I admire Sycamore's gossamer refusal ever to land anywhere definitive. The sentences travel further and further into trauma's backyard, where complex ideas find a habitat among the simplest formulations. Sycamore, by breathing into the prose, treats the act of book building as a practice strange and organic as sleeping, walking, bathing, eating. The freezer door delves into the philosophy of the sexual meeting place with a virtually unprecedented aplomb. Excited we have Matilda back again for her latest book, The Remarkable Touching the Art from Soft Skull Press. Here are thoughts on Touching the Art from three past Between the Covers guests. Christina Sharp says, Matilda Bernstein Sycamore's Touching the Art is ekphrastic, intimate, historical, and proximate. The art of the title, paintings by Sycamore's grandmother Gladys Goldstein, appears only through description. And what description? We encounter the work, learn who Gladys was, and who she was in relation to how gentrification, redlining, and anti-blackness shape space, and how quote-unquote family organizes itself to refuse confrontation and to excise queerness. Sycamore employs diverging yet deeply related histories. Touching the art is an education, a beautiful instruction in feeling and looking. Rabi Alamedin adds, I love writers who take risks, who rattle cages, who overthrow the tables of the money changers, writers who can whisper truths or shout them fabulously from rooftops. Yes, I love Matilda. And finally, Catherine Lacey. Matilda Bernstein Sycamore braids humor, tragedy, and unabashed presence in every single sentence she writes. With Touching the Art, she blends history, essay, and memoir, telling her own secrets and truths through the lives of others. I adore Sycamore's writing and would follow her anywhere. Nobody touches the art like Sycamore. Welcome back to Between the Covers, Matilda Bernstein-Sycamore. Thank you, David. It's such an honor to be here. So this book is amazing, and one of the ways it is is how you somehow write a book that is deeply personal, that is also a book about the life of an artist, which is also about the history of a city, which becomes a book about family, class, Jewishness, white flight, anti-blackness, abstract art, queerness, and homophobia, and much more, while at the same time somehow feeling like it is all inseparable, that each piece is needed to understand the other. And I wanted us to start with the personal and the familial and eventually work our way out to the structural and the historical. Your portrayal of your grandmother, Gladys Goldstein, the way you portray her, a complicated figure in her own right, but a complicated figure for you in particular. The way you portray her, I think, is the genius of this book. And I was hoping we can start with 
the way this book is a love letter to what she inspired in you. And then we'll complicate it as we go along. Um, in Touching the Art, you say of Gladys that she gave you the gift of being a child who could dream despite the trauma, that she, quote, offered me the tools to imagine myself outside of normalcy, that she helped you to dream an everyday experience, to look at a flower and savor each element, to take it all inside. And you say, quote, what is it about Gladys's art that creates a sense of wonder? How after looking at her art, I can feel this way when I look at anything. This is the place in me that she helped to create. And you also talk about how she recorded your relationship together through her paintings before you were old enough to even be able to. And finally, I'll add that you, you bowed to Gladys as a big influence on your writing. In talking about her paintings, she said, as the painting changes, you change with it. You start out with one idea, and then something else happens. And then you say, that's how I write. The form emerges from the act of writing. I wonder if you could both speak more into this indebtedness you have to your grandmother's art and also perhaps begin to orient us to what her art was like and how she was situated within the art world. Thank you for that beautiful question. So as a child, I think that Gladys nourished everything that made me different. So my femininity, my introspection, my creativity, my empathy, my softness. And going into her studio when I was a kid was the one place where I could dream. And I could imagine a creative life because I was living it there with her. She was an abstract artist. And so her way of thinking about art was that everything was art. So when you're walking around in the world and you see a leaf on the ground and you pick it up and you look at that structure, right? Or you look at how the light comes through it, that is also a painting. And so she really, although I didn't know it at the time, you know, taught me in a way to look at everything that way. And actually when I'm, when I'm writing the book, that realization about how she saw art and how that impacted me was not something I knew before. That really came through the writing process. And it's also not something that she would have necessarily wanted me to do. Mm. <laughs> uh, because abstraction was not the writing that she searched for. My work perhaps became too challenging for her. But that, I guess, is moving further ahead. <laughs> you're asking to stay at the beginning. <laughs> um, so I think that when what you were saying about recording our relationship through her paintings is also something I would never have thought of until writing the book. You know, but then in writing the book, I'm looking in particular, I sort of start by talking about this one painting that was actually in my grandfather's bedroom. And my grandfather's bedroom became my room when I visited. And on the wall of that bedroom um, is this painting or was this painting that was modeled after a photo that was taken by my other grandmother when I think I was about six, if I'm remembering correctly. And it's, 
it's abstract, but it also includes a figure on the left, which is obviously me. And I'm wearing this long pink scarf and blending into the flowers in the background. And as a child, I always found that soothing. As an adult, though, looking at it now, and again, this is also not something I realized until writing the book. And in some ways, you know, I'm always creating the structure of a book as I'm writing it. And the writing changes me as I change with it. So kind of like you were, what you were saying about the paintings, right? Yeah. Um, and, and so in looking at that, I see that she actually saw the trauma in me as a child, because in, the, in that painting, I look traumatized. And there are three other paintings that I talk about that are directly about me. And one of them was painted, I think when I was two, and that one is called Child's Play. That one is completely abstract. And again, I actually never thought about it in relationship to me, but I know it's about me because there was no other child that she was looking at at that time. And, it's, and so there is this relationship that in some ways is literal in the art itself. And in some ways, I think that is what abstraction is, right? Abstraction is always literal. And Gladys, actually, she saw herself, you know, the way she, she saw in some ways, she would say, well, I'm a realistic painter. Because <laughs> she thought that recording something as if it was photographic, to her, that wasn't realism. That was, you know, something kind of inauthentic or derivative. And she wanted to conjure the actual feeling of the thing or the experience or the imagination in the painting. And I think that is something in some ways that I'm also discovering as I'm writing. And so my relationship with her art, you know, I start the book by literally touching the art. You know, it's a literal exploration. And so I'm taking these handmade paperwork that are very layered and that I saw her, you know, create when I was a kid. And I'm, I'm sort of feeling into everything that comes through. And so that first layer that you're asking about, right, is, of course, directly about the art. So I see like, oh, here is a seashell wind chime that's embedded in the paperwork. And I remember when that wind chimes broke and then she thought, oh, I should put those in my paperwork, you know, <laughs> or there might be like shredded paper. Because I remember she got very excited when commercial shredders, you know, the people started having them in their homes in the 80s. And she was like, look at this beauty, <laughs> this shredded paper that I can put in my paperwork. Or um, a uh, beaded necklace would break and she would put the beads into the paperwork. Or like as a kid, we went to this, this place that she called the Button Factory, which I think was like a, you know, a store that sold recycled goods. And, and you know, and we would look through and she would find something that was just like a plastic mold who knows what it was originally for, but she would use it to create the shapes in her paperwork. And so that's the first layer is I'm thinking about or feeling into the process of creating the art. And then of course, there are my memories of being with her and experiencing that excitement. And even like, you know, I also look at videos that were made of her for public television in Maryland. And I can see her excitement, right? When she talks about making candy wrapper collages, which was something she did for about three decades, her eyes just light up and it's like she's a child again. And I think that is also my experience of being with her art, regardless of the complications that I know you want to talk about next. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, let's stay with let's stay with the art for another moment because I think one of the wildest things about this book and one of the most distinctive things about this book, something that Christina Sharp also notices and marvels about in her blurb, is how much description there is about Gladys's art, given that we are never given the art itself. There are no images in the book, but there is a large amount of ekphrastic writing and touching the art. And yet somehow it always seems very engaging and tethered to the stakes for you emotionally. And I want to ask you about that, but first maybe it would be good to hear a short passage. Am I wrong to say that sometimes when you carry a piece of art, the art carries you? When there is a difference and when there isn't. Like the birch tree in the front yard of the house where I grew up. I would peel it just to see imagining this was how they discovered paper. Sometimes I can't tell which side is the front and which is the back. And sometimes Gladys blurred this distinction on purpose when she noticed that both were their own pieces. I have a collage like this and I wanna see both sides. So I don't frame it. Gladys didn't title most of her collages, but she did title the paintings, Checkered Life, Touching Lights, Day Dust, Plus A, B Series 2, Dawn, Light Square, Spring Star, Pastoral, Dayscape, Magic Day. These are some of the paintings I have now. As a writer, I notice how vague these titles are. They can say everything or nothing. But then there's Child's Play, a painting she made in 1974, one year after I was born. There's no way this isn't about me. And there's no way I would know if she hadn't used that title. See how she's recording our relationship, even before I possibly could, recording me, something between us, the light. I have this painting now, Child's Play. I see spaciousness and loss. I see a bright central presence a presence, a swiftness in the lines, a chaos, a stillness in the corner, collapse. How there's a chain of command between color and line, but everything stretches everywhere at once. There's a center, but it isn't necessarily central. How the metallic silver collage parts expand the field. How magenta or yellow or orange brings your eyes down, but somehow the lines between or beyond still create the momentum. This is not a work primarily formed by geometry. There are shapes, but they're more like doodles into one another. And so your attention constantly shifts. See that purple and red rectangle with partial yellow border. Maybe you stay there a while, noticing the triangles within. How no color is just one color, the translucence of the paint. But then maybe you're in that space at the center of the canvas where everything and nothing dissolves. No, the orange and yellow over there at left or the bleeding red and blue in the top corner. No, the silver collage parts on purple pushing through gray, the red and orange in gold at the center. Yes, there could be a figure on the right with arms not yet formed. And this is how you see that it's the lines that win inside and out where lines become unlined, 
wait, that careful orange coming out of gold and purple into more purple, back into gray, into mauve, into teal, into orange. And I think this would be, could be my belly. We've been listening to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore read from Touching the Art. So I know you've already sort of started to answer the question I'm going to ask with you talking about how you begin by touching the art, literally. But talk to us about writing about visual art, knowing we aren't going to see it, but rather that you're going to conjure it in our imaginations. And I wondered if this presented challenges or if this came naturally, if you could expound more on the methods you use to begin writing with words about abstraction and color. And if you looked to other people doing this, and if you, if so, who, who you looked to other people who are engaging with visual art? Oh, thank you. That's a great question. Um, so I really wanted to start abstractly on the terms of the art, but at the same time, I'm touching the art, right? So what could be more concrete? So I wanted both at the same time, and I did not want to look at to any models initially because I'm not an art critic, and I feel like that's a strength. Like I wanted to write about the art as I was feeling it as a writer and also my relationship to it and how that changes as I experience the art, as I am literally touching it, as I'm moving it around into different light. You know, maybe I even lick it, or at one point there's a piece that's falling off of one of the handmade paperworks and I put it in my mouth, right? I wanted the full sensory experience of it. And it was a challenge. I think abstract art is actually very hard to conjure because description on its own fails. And I think that's part of the excitement of abstract art in a way, right? And so, you know, I was just writing and writing and I would write about individual pieces that moved me. I would write, um, so I probably wrote like a few hundred pages just describing the art. You know, in the book, that early section is probably about 50 pages, but a lot of that is not specifically about art. So maybe there's like, you know, 20 or 30 pages very specifically about the art. And that comes through paring the rest of it down, you know? And so I, so I, and I had to just keep writing it over and over again. And I think in order to really, I guess, get to the, the core of it, right? The, um, the essence or the, um, the experiential part of it. That's what I really, and I think also the activeness, right? It's not, I don't think looking at art is ever a passive experience. And so I didn't want the language to be passive either. So initially I just wrote and wrote, I think a lot later, which is really the last part of the book that I was writing, it, it, it follows that order in the book too, is when I was doing a lot of research, Elaine de Kooning, her art criticism is amazing. And she can just conjure something with just a few lines. And so that was very interesting to look at later on. I don't know if it influenced me in the writing, but I guess it validated. I guess that's what it did. It validated in some ways what I was doing, because it's tricky because, you know, let's say you look at an abstract painting and let's say, you know, let's say there are 35 shapes in the painting, right? And then the 35 shapes might be a variety of colors. There might be a difference of techniques. There could be um, different kinds of layering. There might be other things in the painting that are not made of paint. 
So just thinking about that alone, right? If we were to literally describe the structure, right? That alone would be like pages and pages and pages, but would it be interesting? It might be interesting as, as an experiment, but would you really feel the art? Maybe less than if you could just somehow conjure what it's doing in a few shorter phrases. And it's also since the art in the book, of course, is, you know, the book in some ways is structured, you know, like a work of art or like a collage. I mean, it's process oriented and it's also layered in those senses. And there also are pieces that come through or wind around, you know, little surprises that you find that you don't expect. And so all of that really came through the writing. And so for me, I think in that way, I'm approaching the writing maybe more similar to visual art than traditional writing. Well, I particularly love this line in what you just read. I see spaciousness and loss. I see a bright central present, a presence, a swiftness in the lines, a chaos, a stillness in the corner, collapse. For one, for me, it raises the mystery of whether this is what you see in her art or if this is you witnessing her seeing you when she makes it. And of course it could be one or the other or both or neither, all of the above. But it's clear in your teen years when she has you pose that she does seem to see you, for instance, when you say things like, when she painted me again at age 12, long eyelashes emphasize my femininity here I have softer features, hints of a nose and lips, my hand reaching into paper collaged onto the canvas. The painting is saturated in blues, like I'm in the sky or the water, but also I'm grounded by what I'm holding onto, these words. What do they say? The way my shirt becomes a collage, but also everything is fluid even in the brightness of my gaze, I'm holding on with a stoicism that I didn't realize she recognized. In interviews, you characterize the central paradox in Touching the Art as that Gladys nurtured everything that made you queer. And yet, as you came into your queerness, she rejected everything that she nurtured. And there are many iterations of this in the book one-on-one -on -one between you within your family structure and then more outward. But I'd like to spend a moment with the one-on-one -on -one between you. As I was reading all the ways she found you vulgar, I constructed my own narrative of why that I don't think is explicitly on the page. But I wanted to hear your thoughts first before I put forth mine around what seemed to be the two main things she couldn't abide. One, a sense of public queerness, any sort of being flamboyantly so. And the other, I think, around you dropping out of school um, and moving to San Francisco without some sort of obvious vector and trajectory and plan. In some ways, the genesis of the book is that I'm trying to understand the moment or the years in which 
you know, like as a child, I looked to Gladys as the model of everything that I wanted to be. And I saw her as rejecting the narrow path of upward mobility that was what I was socialized into and that what was everywhere surrounding me. You know, like as a child, I had two options. As a child, I should say, as a child who was excelling, you know, in school, I had two options and that was doctor or lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) And every relative would say, do you want to be a doctor or a lawyer? And of course, this is is an assimilated Jewish family. This is very common. And then one side of the family decided to give me another option, which was stockbroker. Um, And that was the more blatantly, the other side of the family, actually, who were like blatantly, you know, where where money and status were the top thing, right? Now, on Gladys' side of the family, which is my father's side, um, the top thing was education. So at the end of high school, when it was clear that I maybe I wasn't going to follow this path of like, you know, doctor or lawyer, they opened up another possibility, which was college professor. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so none of these things, you know, did I want. Um, But because I was excelling, and that was what meant most to them, and I think what meant most to them, I would say, in my family of origin, was educational attainment, you know, And uh, and, and alongside that is upper mobility, class driving, and at any cost. Now, that's the key, right? At any cost. So the violence in the family, you know, that I experienced as a child could always be camouflaged by my father's success, right? And my father, again, I saw him as completely separate from Gladys. But of course, his worldview was in many ways produced by her. And so to him, to my parents, you know, I was a sort of status object, something to attain for them, something that gave them um, clout. And, but like I said, as a kid, I thought, you know, Gladys's way of talking about the world was that the only thing that mattered was creativity. The only thing that mattered was making art and sensitivity and like caring. And I believed that myth. It was a myth. But even though it was a myth, it saved me. So that is part of that paradox, right? Is that later on, when I decide to leave college, because I real after one year, because I realized I'm just learning to how to outdo my parents on their own terms. You know, I'm learning to like internalize the violence and externalize this notion of success. And so I'm like, get me the hell out of here. (laughs) I need to unlearn this if I'm ever going to learn anything that will save me or allow me to connect with other queers or freaks or outsiders or weirdos. or um, And so I moved to San Francisco when I was 19. and, And that's the world that I found, you know, a world of like dropouts and um, incest survivors and whores and sluts and vegans and anarchists and druggies and direct action activists, which is where I was first drawn. But all of that to Gladys, all of it, every single aspect, everything I mentioned, to her, that was all vulgar. That was the word she used. And like when I was doing activism against police brutality or organizing around the second Rodney King verdict, 
I think especially those things, but also being a part of Act Up or doing um, activism for abortion access, all of that was vulgar to her. It was just vulgar. She just discounted it entirely. But I think actually, I will say, I think especially activism around racial justice, you know, because part of that package of Jewish assimilation is assimilation into white supremacy, right? And that comes along with that whole package. And so, but again, as a child, I did not see her as part of that. And it's, and I, I think that in the book, I want to preserve that um, ambiguity in a sense, right? Because even though what I learn or come to understand that more than anything, she was the progenitor of you know, the worldview of my immediate family rather than an alternative to it. She still gave me all of those alternatives. And so when I decided to, well, I moved to San Francisco and then decided I was dropping out of school. And like, she tried to renounce her entire life in order to get me to fit into what I knew would destroy me. Like I knew it would destroy me. I mean, my soul. (laughs) Like I would be a hollow shell, you know? And she said if she could do it all over again, meaning her whole life, she would have finished school. And what, what I interpreted that as meaning is instead of becoming an artist, you know? Her whole life was about making art. And Now, finishing school for her would have been becoming an art professor, so it's not like she would be completely separate from it. But at the time, I found that so preposterous and so blatantly a lie. You know, it was just a lie. And I was completely against lies (laughs) and would not allow any of them to stand, especially at that time when I was 19. That laid the ground for our following out, even though at the, still at that time period, we still did have some aspect of, of a, like I visited her in that moment. And, you know, she's taking photos of me. She's complimenting me on certain aspects um, that later became vulgar, but somehow in that moment. And there, there are things like, you know, like I remember this one time when I visited her and, you know, my earrings, she was like I think originally a few years before she had complimented me on. And then a few years later, she was just talking about how they were vulgar. My earrings like are, you know, like are arranged kind of like a mosaic and this colorful arrangement of stones and, and uh, textures and metals. And I knew there was like a 0% chance that she did not find it aesthetically beautiful, right? I knew her aesthetic because it informed me. I knew how she looked at the world, but it was vulgar because it was queer and because it was outwardly queer. And see, another layer of this paradox is that her best friend was gay, a gay artist, Keith Martin, who was instrumental to her career. The first person to ever tell her that that she was an artist, essentially, was a gay artist, Hobson Pittman, who was her teacher. And, and this is in 1951, when she's been painting since she was 12, and she was born in 1917. So the fact that this was the first person who told her that she was an artist, right, of course, is indicative of, like, the misogyny that she grew up with, right? But, but nonetheless, these two gay men were formative to her. I later learned from looking at photos that Keith Martin and his lover, 
were entwined with her family. You know, they're going on trips. Keith Martin, his lover, my father, my grandfather, and my grandmother in the 1950s when my father's 13. This is like the central time of conformity, you know, and, you know, familial homophobia that lays the groundwork for everything that we still are suffering from now, right? But like, so there were things that she was able to do, but they did not, that did not translate to me. And I think also part of it, Keith Martin was an abstract artist. And there's, you cannot look, you can look if you know that he's gay and, you know, interpret it in a certain way, but there's nothing that if you just look at a fully abstract painting of his, that you're like, oh, but my writing, starting when I was about 19, is always sexually and politically saturated. And I think both of those things, you know, I think that Gladys, was enthralled of this certain modernist idea of purity, right? And that purity meant that you transcend experience. Even if the art is entirely about experience, like the experience of the art, right? This is again another paradox, right? Is somehow pure and separate from that, right? And so, and so all of that became vulgar to her. And the dominant refrain of the rest of our relationship was her saying over and over again, why are you wasting your talents? Or she would say, or she would just go and, you know, we'd have a conversation. I'd be like, oh, I went to yoga. She's like, oh, now it's going to kill you. (laughs) 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 Then she got a whole anecdote about how she broke her neck, you know, doing yoga or something or, you know, and then, you know, I'd be like, oh, it's another conversation, you know, like, what are you doing? You know, it was always that she knew everything and everything I was doing was wrong. And And that really did start actually if I think about it, with um, when again when I was 19 and I moved to San Francisco and I had um, you know I had left college and that path of upper mobility and but I still wanted to learn of course I mean the reason I left was to learn and one thing I did is I went to this college uh, this course at City College which was called Gay Lesbian Influence on Modern American Art and Culture that Jonathan Katz was teaching and and so I was learning about these artists that I had not realized because, you know, of course, growing up as a queer kid in a world that wants you to die or disappear, you don't learn about queers in the world other than people that don't deserve to live. And so when I was learning, oh, well, Robert Rauschenberg or Jasper Johns, these are essentially, you know, artists that are abstract artists that, that are, um, that my grandmother admired, right? And, and so I write to her because I know that she is coming of age as an artist at that same time. And I say, well, what, what is your opinion on that time period? Or, you know, or how did you experience these gay artists? Her response was very interesting, actually. She wants to outdo me. And she says, well, why are you stopping with them? You know, what about Nureyev? Or what about Michelangelo? You know, but the key, of course, is that it doesn't matter that they're gay, is what she says. And now for her generation, of course, that's a liberated way of thinking. But I think for her, I think it's also about, you know, it's about erasure, right? And I think it was threatening to her, like any flamboyance, like you said, right? Or any direct challenge to the status quo was threatening, even though she was an abstract artist and she wanted to be an abstract artist because she didn't believe in the status quo. (laughs) That's the subtext that I was, I think I was reading in was when you said it had to do with being outwardly queer. I, I imagine, I don't know if this is true because she's traveling with her best friend who's gay and his boyfriend, that they're moving through the world in a way where they appear normatively at that time otherwise, that they're keeping 
she's not asking questions and they're keeping their life behind the curtain, behind the curtain for her in some way, like that there's some sort of like respectability politics and decorum um, around it. Is that, do you think that's correct way to, to be reading into that subtext that it's really the display, the declarative aspect of it that was so impossible for her to um, engage with? I think that's an interesting question. I'm not sure that I can, can answer completely with complete accuracy about that particular question, because I do think this is 1956. They're driving cross country. They're going to all these like tourist destinations. Now, I'm sure that Keith Martin and his lover were not declaring themselves as gay to the world in that context. But they're two men. You know, they are here with a what is obviously a family as, as is be, you know, being uh, accepted to the world, right? And I mean, I mean, and maybe they could pass in some way as part of their family, but I'm not sure. I'm not actually sure about that. She's the one who said to me, actually, in that same correspondence, because this is another thing I, I found when I, when I was writing about, you know, started with touching the art itself, right? And so, you know, some of the writing, like I said, is about the art, some of it is about a relationship, some of it is about trauma, you know, and some of it is about the falling out in our relationship, trauma of growing up with my father who sexually abused me. And then some of it is the falling out that we're talking about with Gladys, right? And I find, you know, my letters to her and her letters to me, which I photocopied at that time, because when I remembered I was sexually abused, I realized that so much of my childhood I'd blocked out and I didn't want to forget anything anymore. So I didn't know I was saving these letters for this reason 30 years later, right? But here they are. And she's the one who says, my best friend, Keith Martin, was gay, you know? So at least in that context of talking to me, but again, this is way later, right? This is when I'm, you know, like an adult, right? But like, uh, I mean, it's not way later. It is this moment when I was 19, 20, 21, but way later than you know, 1956, when she's traveling with, you know, my father, who's 13. So I don't, I can't say for sure, but I, I do think there is, I think it's more about the work in a certain sense. The work is vulgar if it shows those things. But you're right, it's also about me because, but that's the thing that's so fascinating, right? Because I guess it's, as a child, she nourished those exact things. Like you pointed out that painting, when I'm 13, you know, she paints me with long eyelashes, right? It's like, this is a painting that she's creating. She can do anything she wants with it. <laughs> right. But she didn't choose to make me more masculine in any depiction of me. They always, I would say, are, are dominantly feminine. And I think it's because that was what was beautiful to her, you know? And like, part of that was having this gay men who are so influential in her life. Yeah, and so I think in some ways it is in mess with the politics, right? Because because my writing is always in mess with politics and, and, and sexuality at the same time. It's not one or the order or the other. And like you said at the very beginning, you know, in this book, and I loved that you said this, you said it felt like all of the elements are inseparable, right? And that's always how it feels like to me. Yeah. And I think maybe that was vulgar to her. You know, like you can hide some things and show other things or, you know, like I could 
graduate from Brown University and then, you know, get a PhD from another Ivy League institution. And then maybe I could do these other things, right? (laughs) 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 But, But I can't live my life on my own terms. And I guess I will. And I think that might be part of it, too, because she tried to live her life on her own terms. She was going to school to learn painting starting when she was 12, right? And then she was essentially like, you know, married... It was essentially an arranged marriage when she was 18 to like a very wealthy. She grew up in a kind of, you know, the border of working class and middle class. But at that time in Baltimore, that was a very comfortable life. But was, you know, married like uh, a millionaire and then immediately got divorced and was banished and, you know, moved to Florida. Um, This is in the 30s. And then, you know, met someone else she fell in love with, and he found out that she'd been divorced, and she was banished from that world, right? So when she married my grandfather in 1941, she was choosing respectability, middle-class respectability. And that was what allowed her to create. And that was what I did not understand. I thought that by being an artist, that was synonymous with rejecting the world rejecting the violence, rejecting the structures of power, rejecting the everyday life. And I thought that I learned that from her, but that isn't what she believed. She believed that you could do that with middle-class respectability, within, right? Because that's what allowed her to create. And so that is something that I learned from writing the book. And and you even complicate that, I think, because you go into the limited options at the time for women artists where each choice had significant liabilities that her and many of her female artist peers never compared themselves to other women. It was always men that mattered and artists like Lee Krasner and Elaine de Kooning who lived far more cosmopolitan avant-garde or bohemian lifestyles than Gladys. They ended up believing more in the works of their husbands. And Gladys does this other bargain where by marrying a school teacher gives her on the upside artistic autonomy. She is the artist. Her art is central. No husband is making the art. But as you say, she sacrifices a a countercultural lifestyle in the process, living a life with many more norms being sought after outside of her art. And I really love the way you explore this. For instance, that in her critique group that she led, which she seemed great at, asking questions, really flexible and experimental and open, and that she as a teacher wanted her students to be great. Or when you say that in art, she wanted imperfections to show, but in life she wanted them to be concealed what we've already talked about is only, I think, the beginning regarding how Gladys falls short or represents ways of being in the world that you want to move away from, not toward. And we're going to look together at questions of aesthetics and class and race and more. But even now, just with what we've already talked about, where she has shown you freedom and possibility and rejected you for going for it, the book continues to be a love letter to her art and to her alongside it all. It almost insists upon one not negating the other in a way that I find 
incredible and inspirational as a mode of being. And I was going to use this as a frame for the whole conversation, this aspect of the book. But when Johanna Hedva sent their question to me for you, and they articulated it way better than I ever could, (laughs) I'm going to let them ask it and have their words sort of be our way to step forward into the rest of the conversation. So here is this really great question from past Between the Covers guest, Johanna Hedva. Hi, Matilda. It's Johanna Hedva. I'm recording this question for you from a hotel room in Reykjavik. I'm on tour. And over the last few weeks, I have been companioned by touching the art in two ways that have been very meaningful to me. The first is that it has been my traveling companion while I've been on tour. I've been reading it in airports and on planes, trains, buses, subways, many different hotel rooms. It's been a perfect traveling friend for me as I'm trying to do this impossible career and life in art. Your inimitable way of traversing paradoxical, difficult, unanswerable thoughts in equal measure and equal space, always with a sense of freedom, uh, has really helped me these days feel good about being on the road, about being in transit. The other way that it's companioned me is that in these last weeks, my grandmother has been in the last weeks of her life. She died yesterday at the age of 93. She was my father's mother, born in Korea. She emigrated to America when she was 28. She was one of my favorite people in the world. She was fierce and feisty and independent. She grew her own vegetables. There was a big gold Buddha statue in her living room. And she was also a product of her upbringing. She was raised very poor on a farm. She never went to school. And she was virulently homophobic and even violent toward my sibling and me for our queerness. So reading Touching the Art and the ways in which you make critical space at the same time that you reach with love for your own grandmother, Gladys, and you make space for your relationship with her as well as her on her own terms. This was exactly the companion I needed. So I say all of that because my question for you is informed by these two experiences that have been happening in parallel, which feels fitting for what I want to ask you. I've also just been thinking about this all of these many years that I have read your work, so I'm thrilled to get to ask you finally. It has to do with this capacity that you have to not only hold, but I would say to make space for both a this and a that to be true. So I would characterize a primary element of your work by its capaciousness for insisting that two truths, multiple truths, even ones that are mutually exclusive or seem opposite of each other, 
that these can exist at the same time. So like your sentences often will include their inverse or their negation or a question that undoes things. You'll often spend a paragraph building an argument just to end it with with a question that eviscerates everything that you just built. And in Touching the Art, you frequently take the reader on this sort of in-transit movement through how two things can be true at the same time, even if they pull in opposite directions. So I'm thinking of this in political terms, of course, and I'm thinking of it in pragmatic kind of conditions that we have to deal with under capitalism, all of the paradoxes that exist in our world. But I'm also thinking about emotional terms and maybe even mystical terms. Like I'm thinking about how we can love someone who also disagrees with fundamental elements of our existence. I'm thinking about how art can be for us and not for us at the same time. And I'm also, you know, today thinking about what is possible to do with someone while they're alive and then what is possible to do with someone after they've passed. So I would just love to hear you talk a little bit about how you are so adept at holding and making unruly, messy space for binaries and oppositions and paradoxes and things that would seemingly cancel each other out. I just want to know, like, how do you do it? How does it feel for you? Like, is it that it's a space you move through? Is it a methodology? Are there any like craft tricks that you do? I'm curious, what do your sentences look like when you first write them down? And then how do you get so much into them? You know, and then they also somehow manage to always go somewhere else than where you start. So I'm just curious to hear you talk a little bit about how you travel that space. Thank you. Signing off from Reykjavik. Wow. (laughs) That is so beautiful. Um, Well, first of all, Johanna, thank you for such an incredibly deep engagement with my work and with the world in your work as well. And what an honor that Touching the Art could accompany you on this tour and even in this moment where your grandmother died at basically the same age as mine and all of her complications. And I just love everything that you say here about my work. It's funny because Johanna and I were in conversation about um, Johanna's uh, recent book, recently at Third Place Books in uh, Seattle, uh, which is that, and that book is about the art world, you know, m- among many other topics and, and includes many, uh, it's a novel, but includes, you know, many relational aspects of Johanna's life, you know, in the, in the context of art. And, and I was like, well, I wonder what Johanna's going to think about this book. <laughs> 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 so it's so great to hear now. Um, 
I think I want to start by saying that for me, I think the openness, it all comes from sort of writing the book on its own terms, any book, you know, starting without any sense of direction or structure or form or plot or even the topics that are going to be included. Now, in this, in this the case of this book, I did have one specific thing, which was that I knew it was going to be about my relationship with Gladys. I think this was part of Johanna's question where it wasn't until Gladys's death in 2010 when I went to her house and I spent time with her art and with everything that she had left. So her mineral collection, her um, furniture, you know, photographs, um, her garden, and in the same space, her studio, you know, it was all there, right? It's all still there. And it was in that moment where I realized what it would have meant to me for her to engage with my work as an artist, right? And, and this is something that she refused. She refused. And in her death, I, of course, realized that would never happen. And I engaged with her work as an artist. And I would go into her studio when I was visiting, and she would ask me to look closely at a painting and, ask, you know, and I would, I would talk about my response. And, and then sometimes I might see something that I thought was just, was, was, like, I remember this one time there was like a bright blue and somewhere towards the left side of the painting. And I, I thought it was drawing too much attention. Now she didn't ask me that question. But I just said, well, I, do you think that's drawing too much attention? You know, she said, oh, no, I don't think so. And then she called me up later and she said, I took it out. You were right. And so she respected my opinion on her work, but she refused to engage with mine. And I think that ironically, in many ways, is the genesis of this book, right? That is where it starts, because before that, and I couldn't have written this book if she were still alive because I wouldn't have mi realized I missed her. And because so much of our, our relationship had become like, oh, call her up to tell her, unless I was talking direct about art. Like if I said, oh, I went to this Miro show and, I, and here's this great brochure, she wants to hear everything about that. <laughs> uh, everything else, forget it. You know, like my wife, no, no, no. She knew everything and I was wrong. But I think... That realization, in some ways, I didn't realize it then because I was 2010. I started this book, I think, around 2017. But I think it, that, yeah, just that realization. And I think being in her studio, just realizing, like, how much that space meant to me, right? And it's a literal space. But more than that, it's a space that's still in me, right? And so I think for me, holding all the contradictions... It is a method, but it's also, it's a way of surviving, right? Like, like, because I was not allowed those contradictions to exist as a child, right? You know, I was sexually abused, but the only way I could survive is to shut it out. I wouldn't have lived otherwise. I couldn't have lived. And the only reason, the only way I could survive my father's, you know, anger, his rage was to become cold 
you know, and to just look at him, like, look at the painting on the wall behind him. <laughs> oh, what, what was that you just said, you know? And so in making art as a means of survival, I need all of it to exist, like all of it. And to me, that, that is, you know, I'm writing against the lie. And the lie is that lie of upper mobility. The lie is that lie of class attainment. That, the lie is that lie of straight acceptance. I want a sentence to be a living, breathing thing, right? And so when the sentence takes me somewhere, I go there. But the juxtapositions in my writing, a lot of it comes through the editing, right? Because I write and write and write and write. And then, you know, and then I'll find something and I'm like, oh, wow, there it is, right? But then I'm like, does it need the rest? Maybe not. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it needs how you get there. Sometimes it doesn't. And, and part of that is the making space, right? So I think in terms of the practice of writing for me, and also writing, you know, because I deal with like debilitating, like chronic health problems all the time, I'm always writing against the, the fact that I can't write. <laughs> I think I say in the book, you know, when they say, what is your method, you know, or what is your creative practice? It's to try and try and try. And then somewhere in that gap, between the limits of my body, you know, somewhere in that gap, right? And then I just leave it, right? And, that, and the, originally there was more to that sentence, but then I was like, oh wait, this is the gap, right? That's, and I, so writing into the gaps is totally important to me. And those are the gaps between what we expect and what we know, between what we feel and what we experience, if those could be two separate things, between what we remember and what we analytically expect between survival and loss, between loss and capacity, between capacity and um, exploration, between exploration and fragmentation, between fragmentation and closure, between closure and empathy, between empathy and softness, between softness and brokenness, between brokenness and everything else. <laughs> and so, and, and I, and so I think that the question about, and so I wanted Gladys to exist in all of her complications. She would never allow that for me, but, but this is how I live. Right. And I think that in looking at aspects of her that she never talked about, right. She never talked about her childhood. She never talked about that first marriage. She never talked about where she grew up even in Baltimore, just a few miles from where she lives. I mean, I knew Keith Martin was her best friend, but I knew nothing about him. I didn't even know my father knew him. <laughs> you know, like, uh, I didn't know that, you know, even though I would have understood, of course, if I thought historically, that, but that, you know, she grew up under rigid segregation, you know, like legal segregation. And so for me, again, and, and I also, I guess I write toward paradox, right? And I want it all to exist because it exists, right? So it's just like, if there is a paradox, we can't solve it because it's a paradox, right? But we can go to all of the complications, all of the levels, all of the intimacies, all of the impossibilities that exist. And one of those impossibilities, I think, is that in writing about her and understanding her and her time and the artists that were her contemporaries and Baltimore and the path of Jewish assimilation and white flight and disinvestment, which formed her and which she was a part of in understanding Baltimore today, you know, and how those legacies continue in everyday experience 
in understanding art and abstraction and how it emerged, you know, in the moment of abstract expressionism and in the 1950s and, you know, in New York and in understanding even like other artists, you know, like Frank O'Hara's relationship with Grace Hardigan, you know, a visual artist and a poet, a gay poet and a straight woman and thinking about her relationship with her best friend, Keith Martin, like in understanding all these layers and complications, even talking to her best friend who was 101 and somehow so completely cogent and told me all these things I would never know otherwise, because I did not know them from Gladys. But in, in understanding all these complications, or at least laying them out, because maybe I don't understand them, but I know that they exist. And that in, in itself is a form of understanding or a form of openness. I guess I'm always writing toward that openness. And I think that the other paradox, right, is that, yes, that is a form of love, you know, to tell the truth, regardless, regardless, always, you know, like the world is not built for that. The world does not want that ever. And we have to do it anyway. And that is an act of love. And I think that is maybe <laughs> what comes through in the book. It really does. I want to I wanna stay with writing against the lie and this notion of telling the truth in love as being an act of love. Because I think one of the things that's really interesting about the book also is we get other ways you've explored the same issues in previous books, for instance, you quote from your novel, Pulling Taffy, which has a fictionalized version of Gladys in it. Or when you engage with your psychiatrist father who sexually abused you, we think of the ways he's appeared in other books prior to this and how they might, the portrayals might differ. In, in Touching the Art, you say at one point that you don't want your father in this book, but then you realize you can't have Gladys in the book without having her son. But thinking of the ways you were very out as a queer person in a way that Gladys wanted to put you back in, what happens with your family around your father, which here isn't adapted into a fictional universe, but handled head on? The degree of gaslighting made me speechless, really. Having recovered your memories of what happened, you decide prior to confronting your father directly to send your four grandparents and your sister your written account of what happened in your words on your terms. But your family rallies around your father and starts to regularly see a false memory specialist together. And similarly, when you seek out therapy around the abuse and your therapist when they learn your dad wrote psychiatric books, asks to read one of them, and after he reads it, tells you that your father couldn't have done what you said he had done because he's so rational in the book. And it all made me think of a book by the psychiatrist Artie Lang called Sanity, Madness, and the Family, which has these riveting case histories of families of schizophrenics from his work in the 1950s. And I don't think his theories are embraced or accepted. And there is the problem of his notion of what's called the schizophrenic mother in the book that seems sexist. But his idea that the so-called madness is found in the family system and that there was something intelligible about the testimony and behavior of the schizophrenic 
in the family when you placed it within the context of the family system and its narratives. He said things, not necessarily from this specific book, but generally, like, society highly values its normal man. It educates children to lose themselves and to become absurd and thus to be normal. Or what we call normal is a product of repression, denial, splitting, projection, introjection, and other forms of destructive action on experience. It is radically estranged from the structure of being. The more one sees this, the more senseless it is to continue with generalized descriptions of supposedly specifically schizoid, schizophrenic, hysterical, quote-unquote, mechanisms. But in, in digging up these quotes for today, I, I discovered that Hilary Mantel, the novelist, wrote the foreword of the recent reissue of this half-century-old book, that she cites this as the book that shaped her and helped her recognize the right to pick up a pen and be a writer. That each history was for her like a novel or a play in miniature, and that the family conversations seemed uncannily familiar to her, their swerves and evasions and their doubleness, and how all of these histories were of young women, and with many of them, the families are telling them that they don't want what they say that they want or telling them that what they're experiencing isn't happening. And Mantel says, For most of my life, I'd been told that I didn't know how the world worked. That afternoon, I decided I did know after all. And I, I say all of this because you've traced certain ways around the way you write to how Gladys painted and collaged her mode of art making. But I wonder what, if any ways, this writing down of your own testimony on your own terms, in your own language, only to be disbelieved in a wholesale way, a complete systemic family decision to protect itself from what it would have to reconsider if it believed you. If there were ways, like Mantel describes for her, either positively or negatively, that this experience of your own testimony that is rejected, if it's affected your approach to language and meaning as embodied in and within words? Wow, that's an amazing question. When I first, I guess, was coming of age as a writer, um, let's say, I guess around the same time as my falling out with um, Gladys, actually. So like when I was 19, that's when I found language poetry. And at that time, I was like, wow, because I felt like I wanted to change language, you know. And um, now I was not aware of the, the, the whole purity myth in language poetry, right? <laughs> but what I did know was like, okay, you take all of your experiences, how I interpret it, right? And you condense it to like five or six words on the page or maybe 10 pages that include 50 words in total, you know, and that every single space, every lack, every gap, every arrangement, all of it mattered as much as anything else, right? And when later, when not later, I mean just like a year later, you know, when I started writing in prose because my friends were like, oh my God, you have all these stories about turning tricks when I became a hooker, 
they're like, you need to write those down. I was like, these are not, I'm, I don't want to write those down. I, I want to change the language, right? And but I was like, wait a second, I believe in experiments. So, you know, I don't want a formula. So let me try it. So I started writing them and I was like, oh, wow, well, this is, these are good stories. So that's when voice came back into it, right? But still I have, I guess like language poetry taught me how to edit, right? And also I still have that same consideration, I think, about spacing and about form and about rejecting form, you know, or the conventions of form. And also 19 was when I remembered that I was sexually abused by my father. So all this is happening at once now that I think about it. Now that is actually probably, I guess the language poetry is about a year before that. But when I remembered that I was sexually abused by my father, I already knew that I hated him, but I thought I hated him for something else. I thought I hated him for his rage, you know, and the way that he controlled everyone in the family through that rage and through that brutality. But I didn't realize there was a whole other level, right? Or, or multiple levels. And it, and it was everything that informed me, everything. You know, that kind of trauma is everything. And my relationship to the world is formed by that, you know, formed through that still. And one of the things when I was working on this book, like you said, you know, I've written about my father sexually abusing me in, I think, almost every book, fiction or nonfiction. And it takes different forms, you know, over time. But one of the things in this book, you know, when I find those letters between me and Gladys, and by I say, when I say find, I mean, I have them in a file cabinet. <laughs> like I filed them. I know I have them, but I just didn't, you know, I wasn't thinking about it. Right. I was like, oh, wait, I have some letters. Let me look. Oh, look, here they all are mapping out in my own words and in her own words. Right then. Like that is a gift, you know, like to have that documentation and and then my letter that I wrote to the family that you mentioned, you know, I have that. Um, strangely, that was harder to find because I had to find it on a computer. But in the letters, some of the things that Gladys says, I mean, like, and actually, and that's the thing in writing the book, because I'm writing the book, I'm starting with her art. And so I'm starting with this place of pleasure and lightness and excitement and then when trauma comes into it, I'm like, oh, no. <laughs> now, obviously, I had to have known it was going to be there somewhere. But and this is what I mean also, I think, in, uh, in response to Johanna's question, too. But like, whatever comes in, I let it in, you know, like it, it belongs there. And I think a different way to write a book right, would be like, oh, no, that doesn't belong here. Right. That would be my grandmother's way to write the book <laughs> or a more conventional biographical impulse. Right. Um, or even a conventional memoir impulse. Or maybe the conventional memoir impulse would write only the trauma. So when the trauma comes in and I'm writing about the art, it's kind of a, um, an antidote in a certain way. And it's also an expression. The text sort of opens up to include these other texts. And her letters to me at that time like, especially there's one where she says, oh, I wish I could remember the quote, but it's like, she's talking about the trauma that I have caused by confronting my father about sexually abusing me. Not the trauma that he has caused by the abuse itself. 
but the trauma that I have caused by telling the truth and confronting the lie, the lie which is the family that you're talking about, right? And that like shocked me. I mean, I blocked that out entirely. <laughs> and I remembered her initial reaction, which was to say, called me up after she got the letter and she said, if this is true, how do I go on living? And in my sense, at the time, I thought that was an honest um, response. Now I don't know that I think that's honest. It's kind of, it's just manipulative, right? But at the time I said, well, it is true. And I want you to go on living. But I think she couldn't even allow my own trauma to be mine, let alone the reality of the abuse, which like you said, the, you know, my mother, her, you know, sort of rally around this so-called false memory expert and their job, the job of that person is to say that my truth, the truth is a lie. How do they bring me back to the family? That's the question, right? How do they bring me back to the family? How do they continue the violence permanently, you know? And your question about form is a really interesting one. I think I already had rejected the conventional form of writing, but in sending them my confrontation letter, which is long, you know, it's, I can't remember, but it's like 20 pages, you know, talking about what I'd experienced, how I was healing and saying that I would never speak to my father again, unless he could come to terms with it. And I gave that to him in person, knowing that he has access to every possible way. No one has more access <laughs> of coming to terms with it, right? And refuse that. And I knew that would happen, but knowing it and then experiencing it are two different things. And so I think that trauma, and that was, I think, a new layer in a certain sense in this book, for me, is, is these letters from Gladys. And feeling that and, 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 and that process of the writing. So it's very interesting because like sometimes people ask, well, what is, and in writing it, I'm like, oh, you know, it's, it's heartbreaking, right? I'm, I'm having my heart broken all over again. <laughs> but the experience of talking about it now is actually grounding and is actually clarifying. And, and I, I, I'll, I'll say one more thing, which is that which I think makes it even worse. But I don't know that they didn't believe me. I know what they chose to do. They chose to support him over me, but I don't know if that's because they didn't believe me. And I think that makes it worse. I think that they may, I think, I, I think if I had to choose yes or no, I think they believed me, especially my two grandmothers. I think they believed me and chose what they thought was, I mean, they chose like respectability and this lie of the family that you're talking about. They chose that violence over me. They had to protect that. They had to protect that and they had to protect him. And that's something that, of course, I will always live with. And, and I'm also really glad that I could express that in all of its complications within this book, right? That is also <laughs> like centrally about my relationship with Gladys, right? And miraculously continues to be a love letter through it all somehow. 
I want to transition to bringing the lie outside of the family into the city, into the neighborhoods and the museums of Baltimore. I go on a maybe monthly walk with Cal Angus, the writer who's been on the show and who's the founder and editor of Smoke and Mold, who interviewed you while also on a walk in Seattle. And they reminded me of how city-centric your works are. The end of San Francisco, obviously about San Francisco, and Sketch to See about Boston, the freezer door about Seattle, and this book, Baltimore. And it's clear reading the book that you moved to Baltimore temporarily as part of writing the book, that being there, living there, seems to be an important part of it that perhaps just like literally touching Gladys's art is an essential part of the ecrastic writing that you needed to have your feet touching the ground in the place that you were writing about. And I want to hear about that as part of, as part of this question, but I wanted to read some things that you've said about other cities in your 2020 bomb interview. You say Seattle is an ironic place for me because people here are in an urban environment, but they act like they're in the suburbs. They don't want any unplanned interaction. They don't want anything to jar them or make them uncomfortable or feel a little weird or even feeling amazing and transformed. Those are the reasons to live in a city, at least for me. The dream of the city is that it's a place where you find everything and everyone that you never imagined. When everything is gated, that's impossible. In Seattle, we have a term for this called the Seattle freeze. It's like you're walking down the street and someone sees you, but they just look right through you with a white picket fence in their eyes. San Francisco is the city that formed me. What was always unique for me about San Francisco was that I'd just walk down the street and find the people who recognized me, people who were like me, you're one of us. You're outside of the world and we're in the world together. But that's so much harder to find there now. And that's true of every gentrified city. So thinking of your descriptions of Seattle now and San Francisco in the 90s, I want to hear about this methodology of needing to be there in Baltimore and all these other places, but also talk to us about what it was like for you to move around in and through the streets and spaces of Baltimore, how you would speak the Baltimore experience for you in a similar way to the way I just quoted you speaking about the Seattle and San Francisco experiences. Oh, I love that. Yeah, I, yeah, I think all of my work is place-based. So after I was doing this exploration of touching the art, literally, and writing what came through, I realized, well, I, I need to move to Baltimore to see what will come through there, right? Because I know something's going to change. Some of that was about tracing things that were literally very specifically about Gladys. So like at the Baltimore Museum of Art, they have a scrapbook of her uh, in their archive of her, that she kept of all her um, press clippings from the 50s, 60s, and 70s. Or like, you know, some paintings. There's a permanent collection of her art at the University of Maryland, um, you know, talking to her students going over to her, her next door neighbor's house, spending time with them, going to places that we went to when I was a kid. And some of it was about my experience, you know, just being in Baltimore myself. And, and it was interesting, even just planning to go there, 
figuring out like where it's going to live. I thought, oh, it's going to be, this is a city that is not gentrified, <laughs> like, um, you know, Seattle or San Francisco or New York. So I was like, oh, I'm going to find the nicest, the most beautiful apartment. It's going to be really cheap. And it was very hard to find an, a temporary apartment, at least. And it was not cheap. And I was like, well, what the hell is driving this? And so some of my first experiences in Baltimore are just sort of like walking around the neighborhood where I was living, which was um, Charles Village. And one of the first things I noticed is like, unlike in Seattle, as you described, where people see you on the street and they <laughs> look through you or turn the other way, even if you know them, in Baltimore, people are really want to interact, you know, and I actually love that, even though half of it was positive and half of it was negative. I, I enjoy that much more. And so, so that was one of the first, you know, kinds of things that came through. Yeah, and, and, and that, that question that you, or that quote that you read from me about when I first, you know, moved to San Francisco and that experience of like finding other people like me on the street, right? I think I'm, I'm always searching for that. That's my experience still, you know, I'm still, that's still what I want all the time. <laughs> And I'm always feeling the lack, right? Now, Baltimore, there was more more of that and more potential in a way in these limited strips of Baltimore. Cause, but, but for these connections, like across the limitations, you know, of identity and race and class and in this limited, but I, when I say limited, I mean, Baltimore is a city that is still mostly in collapse. And that is because of decades of racist disinvestment, right? So redlining and structural disinvestment and hyper-policing and all the, and so there are neighborhoods in Baltimore, I would say half of Baltimore, where you go block after block after block and half of the buildings are boarded up or have burned down. And, and these are almost entirely black neighborhoods. And so that experience of Baltimore, which I knew, but it's different to know. And, and, and one of those neighborhoods actually, because Gladys never talked about where she grew up. And I, when I asked her once, do you ever go back to the neighborhood where you grew up? And she said, you can't. And I said, what do you mean? And she said, I was like, does it not exist anymore? And she said, you just can't. And I knew that meant that it had become a black neighborhood um, and that her racism prevented her from ever going back there. This is like just, several, just a few miles from where she was living then, right? But it had become unimaginable. And so I didn't actually know where that was until I talked to her best friend who was still alive at age 101. She mentioned the street they grew up on, or I'm sorry, that Gladys grew up on. And she didn't have the address. So I went with a friend and we were just driving down the street to try to like sort of figure it out. And it was one of those neighborhoods, right? Where like the majority of the buildings are, you know, boarded up or burned down. Every now and then you see like a really nice building. You're like, oh, this is nice. It's a liquor store. You know, occasionally there might be one or two blocks that have been kind of like preserved, you know, by a nonprofit. But mostly it's that experience, you know, and there are kids, you know, just in the middle of the street. There are people nodding off 
but it's mostly abandoned. I think, okay, well, this is the neighborhood where she grew up, right? And, and then I found the neighborhood where she raised my father, which was also a black neighborhood that she never went back to. But that neighborhood was probably very similar to what it had been like when she grew up there. It was still these very well-kept middle-class houses, but the difference was that it was an all-black neighborhood now. And I think that she did not know the difference between those neighborhoods, right? Like that, that was how much her racism prevented her from experiencing the city where she lived her entire life, right? Like she grew up, she was born in 1917. In 1919, when she was two, she moved to Baltimore and she lived there until her death in 2010. And I should say my first experience of Baltimore, a realization was of how blatantly artists are used as tools of displacement. Because there was this neighborhood that I was walking through a lot, um, which is now called Station North, that's the gentrification term. It was declared an arts district, you know, by the city. And so you have a few of these institutions, like the theater I was going to a lot, where you walk in, it's been gutted, right? And it's clearly like, you know, designed by an architect. And I was like, what the hell? How did this happen, right? So I look it up. It's like 20 million. I think that was $18 million of investment. And so this is $18 million for a theater in a, in a neighborhood, in a city that's mostly in collapse, in a neighborhood where just across the street, you know, you have like Black people nodding off on the stoop because of decades of disinvestment, right? Because of this pattern of white flights and it all, and, 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 but at the same time, the city is like, oh, this is an arts district. And then that, that brings in the developers, you know, the, the funding, but does it change the conditions for most people in the neighborhood? It definitely makes the property taxes higher so that, you know, black people have owned their houses for generations may no longer be able to live there, but does it improve the conditions uh, from people who don't have access perhaps? to going to the theater, right? Or to um, going to the new bars or to deciding that the neighborhood is now cute and ready for renovation, right? And so, so that experience of touching the art, right? This is, the, this is the power structure, touching the artists, you know, in service of displacement. And then that, of course, happens everywhere. But there, it felt like a much more top-down experience. I would not have known that in that way unless I was there, right? And there are a lot of things like that, you know, that sometimes literally about, you know, going to the Baltimore Museum of Art and, like, finding this Mark Bradford show. And Mark Bradford is a gay, Black, abstract artist making work now. And, and going to the show, and I didn't know, I don't think I knew anything about him. But I'm in the, you know, I'm in the neighborhood. I'm in the Baltimore Museum of Art all the time, partially to do research, partially because it's a free museum. And like a free museum is the, is the kind that matters, right? Because you can just walk in and out anytime, you know? And, and I, I go to this show and it's right after I talked to this curator who had worked on Gladys's retrospective at the University of Maryland. And the curator was telling me that the work that, that moved him the most of hers was from the 1950s. And that really surprised me, actually, because I felt like that was before she had figured out her own style. And so, so I asked him about that. Well, don't you think her work of the 60s and the 70s, you know? Um, and he said, oh, well, maybe as, as critics were trained to see work that is more 
brooding as important. And then once it becomes colorful, it becomes decorative. And, and I actually had not thought of the fact, I didn't think that color could remove your art from, from meaning because of course, decorative art, you know, means feminine and, you know, brooding is masculine. And, and so of course the masculine art is what means something, right? And so, but, and so I was thinking about abstraction and I was like, well, what, what, what could be more decorative than abstraction as a whole now, right? Like you see a Roscoe or a Pollock or a Mondrian, and it's decorative, right? This is very familiar, right? It's like, it means a particular thing. Now, it didn't mean that when they created it. But I was like, well, maybe all abstract art is decorative. And I went to the show and it like knocked me out, like blew me away. And I was like, oh, okay, well, that's the experience of abstraction. It can be the experience of abstraction. And there were aspects actually of his work that connect to Gladys's work, but but they have no direct connection. You know, I doubt that they ever encountered one another or one another's work. But, but, but there were aspects of the sensibility, certainly. But more than that, it was just, this is art that's touching me. And so I wrote about it without, without knowing why, except that I knew that it was touching me, right? And so much later in the process, like towards the end of writing the book, when I'm writing about this, this experience, I guess another thing, you know, later on when I'm trying to, I'm trying to understand, cause I'm, you know, Gladys grew up under strict legal segregation. So that means almost every aspect of life. So schools, parks, stores, healthcare, housing, it's all segregated. And she grew up three blocks from the line that legally separated black from white homeowners or renters. Uh, and, and Jewish people at that time could only also could only live in a certain segment, but it, so the path of, of white flight for Jews was to move in that direction because that was where they could go. And then those were the neighborhoods that became like affluent Jewish neighborhoods. But she was just three blocks, you know, across that line in a white Christian neighborhood. And, and I was like, well, what, what was that experience like? Right. And again, I wouldn't have even, I don't think I would have thought of that question except that I had gone to that neighborhood. And when I was thinking of that question much later, you know, I realized, well, Billie Holiday was essentially an exact contemporary of Gladys's. And I didn't realize that she grew up in Baltimore until she was about 13 or 14. And so I start like, you know, looking into, you know, Billie Holiday, reading all these books about her. And there's this one line in her memoir where she says, in Baltimore, the whorehouse was the only place where white and black people could interact in any natural way. And I was like, oh my God, that's it. That's it. Now I understand. And much later when I was thinking about Mark Bradford's show, I realized, oh, the show is called Tomorrow is Another Day. And that is the last line in Gone with the Wind. Now Gone with the Wind, the most successful movie of all time, right? And what is the movie about? It's about aggrandizing the legacy of the Confederacy, right? And his show, he says, is about the unfinished project of reconstruction. And I realized that's what I'm writing about. And so then it circles back to him. And so this isn't exactly answering the question <laughs> you asked, but, but I think that that's the structure of the book, right? It's like that I find something and I explore it. And it could be my own memory. It could be Gladys's art. It could be 
my experience of being in Baltimore. It could be research that I do. And it all comes in there. Of course, I'm shaping it later, right? And the the shape comes from all of these parts coming together, right? And also allowing to exist apart. So they're together and apart. And it follows this kind of like elliptical structure. And part of that elliptical structure is me figuring things out. But also it's part of it is the experience of like walking through a city, like maybe the book itself, right? Like not just my experience in Baltimore, which is a very specific part of the book where I am literally walking through the city and having experiences, some of which are like, I might go, you know, I go dancing, right? And then my experience of dancing, which is also touching the art, right? Or like my experience of literally seeing art or my experience of displacement or, or thinking about like all those legacies together, right? But also I think the book itself in certain ways, right? Just like it is about, is like perhaps, making a collage or making a work of visual art, maybe it's also like that experience of a city that I'm always looking for, right? When you find that sudden moment that changes everything. I actually want to ask a couple of questions about the Jewish experience in specific in, in relation both to whiteness and anti-blackness. In a past interview before this book, you say, I think I'm writing through the failure of queer dreams to live up to their potential. The way there's this incredible rhetoric in oppositional queer worlds about accountability, mutuality, respect, negotiation, transformation, and fluidity, but often the rhetoric camouflages hypocrisy and violence. And that has made it so that I no longer believe in these worlds. I don't want new hierarchies. I want an end to all hierarchies. I don't want to become the police. I want to end policing in all its forms. So I want the dream of queerness to live up to its potential. And I think part of this is to honestly describe in the most embodied way possible the betrayal as well as the possibility so that we can get somewhere else. I love this, and I also feel like this is the same spirit behind you puncturing this idea that Jews, in your mind, think of themselves automatically on the side of social justice. I don't know if that is exactly my experience. I might say, and maybe it's a different way of saying the same thing, that Jews have a hard time ever seeing themselves as the oppressor. But either way, I think about the notion of confirmation bias, of discovering what you seek out to find thinking about a Jewish confirmation bias, like I grew up knowing about Abraham Joshua Heschel, his close friendship with Martin Luther King, Heschel putting his body on the line and marches with MLK in the front row over the bridge in Selma, as one example, or that 40 to 50% of the northern white freedom writers were Jewish, who risked their lives going south to register black voters and couple of them dying for it, or that immigrant Jews were among John Brown's anti-slavery fighters in Kansas. But I didn't grow up knowing that the first Jewish cabinet member in the United States was the Sephardic Jew, Judah Philip Benjamin, who served as the Attorney General, Secretary of War, and Secretary of State for the Confederate Army. I learned about prejudicial housing covenants against Jews, but not Jewish discriminatory real estate practices. And I feel like much as you do with liberatory queer rhetoric versus on the ground queer realities, 
you, to borrow Hedva's words, you not only place us in a place of complexity and contradiction without resolving it, you sort of make this space the weird reality that Jewish people couldn't for a long time live in certain parts of Baltimore, and yet Jewish landlords enforce both racist and anti-Semitic housing covenants, or how Jews in Baltimore overwhelmingly supported slavery, even driving an anti-slavery rabbi out of town. I don't think you you would use this language, Matilda, but to me this gesture that Hedva articulates so well of holding and making spaces like this is a very Jewish gesture, both Talmudic, which is dialectical with interpretation and annotation and all done in the spirit of and, and, or this and that rather than either or, but also thinking about the four levels of interpretation in the Torah that the lowest level is the literal and that all four levels exist simultaneously but also think back to the family gaslighting and the ways families can form and endure around a lie when you say about your own Jewish family silences. What does it mean not to acknowledge the obvious facts made invisible by the repetition of a lie over and over again until it becomes an accepted truth? The agreement to lie to one another, even with the truth right there the repetition of these white lies as family history. I mean, we can think of that around the letter that you sent, but we can think about how they never talked about being Jews from the South. Um, and the other silences, like you you go to the Jewish museum and it, it's got a very muddled and weird presentation of Jewish memory, not even mentioning the pogroms that most Baltimore Jews had fled. But I guess my question for you is you you tell us in the book of your own uneasiness around being in Jewish spaces and how exploring Baltimore Jewish history in specific helped you to understand why. And I wondered if you could just speak more into that for us about how the exploration was helpful and the things that you learned about Jewish history, which are complex and contradictory, how they helped you feel like it explained some of your own emotional experiences when you were in Jewish spaces. Yeah, thank you for that. As a kid, you know, I grew up, I grew up in a very assimilated family. You know, my parents were non-religious, but they gave me the option to go to Hebrew school. And so I went to Hebrew school and I kind of loved it, you know, as a kid. Um, I loved it because of the language, actually, which is ironic considering now what I know about Hebrew, but... <laughs> Uh, but it was a reformed uh, temple and we, you know, so you learned how to read Hebrew, but not what it meant. And that aspect, I read that puzzle, I really enjoyed and the historical aspect too. So, you know, certain things like this is around the time of like the Refusenik Jews. I remember writing the school paper. I think I was in fourth or fifth grade about the Refusenik Jews in the Soviet Union. And like, you know, it was like, the, my teachers loved it. I like read it in assembly and, you know, and also like, you know, you, you're, you know, you're planting trees in the Negev desert, like supposedly <laughs> to save the desert. But, you know, I, so I didn't know that, that, that the legacy, the, the idea of the refusing Jews or that legacy was, you know, used by Reagan to sort of bolster his like communist, anti-communist hysteria. I didn't know that when they said we're planting trees in the Negev desert, that was because, 
you know, of the demolition of and removal and ethnic cleansing of Palestinian villages. So I, I believe I really was very proud of my Jewish heritage that in many ways I was choosing, right? Because because my parents were not observant. You know, I had a bar mitzvah and I, I was going to have a confirmation. Oh, and that, but that was the time period when I decided that I didn't believe in God. Um, and even that, right, that's very Jewish, right? You can be like, but I didn't, I didn't know this history, right? I didn't know a history of atheist Jews, you know? And, and so I rejected the whole thing in that moment. And part of that was about not believing in God, but the rest of it was about seeing the misogyny and especially the racism in my birth family. And one way that that, and one way I just remember so specifically, especially in the side of the family that was more observant and, you know, so celebrating um, Passover and going, you know, to the house. And, and I loved those rituals, you know, like I was the one that, that sang the prayers, even, even, I think I was the youngest. If, no, I was not the youngest, actually. The youngest are, you know, supposed to sing the prayers. But, but I remember very, this very specific visceral memory. Well, one thing I remember is, you know, the, those family members, they would switch to Yiddish to say racist things about black people. Um, and, and I thought at that time, I was like, oh, that's what Yiddish is for. <laughs> I did not even realize that, you know, what the history of Yiddish was, right? And, uh, and so I, I think that, that, that's, that is, that's that violence of assimilation, right? And I think your connection to what I say about the dream of queer is, is totally true, because I think that my suspicion and horror of assimilation comes earlier, right? It comes from that experience of Jewish assimilation, you know? And, uh, and like, I remember one time it was uh, Roots was on TV. It was like a rebroadcast of Roots. And every, this is that contradiction that you're talking about. Everyone was so excited. They're all so excited. And I'm like, I'm not watching this with these racists. You know, they're at the same time. They're talking, they're like, which is Yiddish to say racist things? But like, why are they excited about, you know, watching Roots, right? And so, I think when I learn the history of Jewish assimilation in Baltimore, it makes everything make more sense, right? Because I think, you know, like we always hear about like Jews leading the unions, but we don't hear about Jews running the sweatshops, right? <laughs> For sure. <laughs> like, you know, and like, um, and in Baltimore in particular, you know, the like when I went to the Jewish Museum and I asked about, Structural racism, or, or what did I say? Uh, and they interpreted my question as being about racism against Jews, right? Which did exist, but that wasn't my question, you know? So they were talking about where Jews were not allowed. Oh, I know, I said, well, the role of Jews in white flight. That was my question. And they interpreted that, you know, they were like, oh, here's where Jews couldn't own property. And I know that Gladys was proud of owning property in a neighborhood that did not have covenants or policies restricting Jewish home ownership. But were there, you know, so she called that a neighborhood that was not segregated, right? <laughs> but it was almost entirely segregated, you know, maybe not against Jews, but certainly against black people. And, and learning the deeper history of that, right? Like here, and this is true of most cities in the U.S., right? But, but speaking specifically about Baltimore, like, there's a very obvious opportunity to learn <laughs> the, the like palpable lessons of your own history, right? And apply it. 
right? Like the original neighborhoods where Jews were, you know, allowed to own property, the only neighborhoods, right? The same, you know, it's like everyone who was excluded was, was in those neighborhoods, right? And, and like the, even this notion of like entire, the majority of the city, Jews were not allowed to property. So when Jews have the option to move somewhere else, that participation in white flight and assimilation as the only option, which is what has destroyed so much of the city, not just their participation, right? But white people as a whole, but Jews did not have to become part of white people, you know? Like Jews were not considered white, but I think beyond that, those individual choices, just this history of, that I did not know, right? Like, like you made, you pointed out, like I didn't even think of my family as coming from the South because they never talked about it that way, right? But like Baltimore was in the South. <laughs> I'm part of my family from Virginia. Like I think, and and so because I never thought of it as the South, I never even thought of it as them experiencing segregation. Even my father grew up in entirely, my mother too. They grew up in segregated schools, you know, until they were, middle school until middle school, you know, I like legally segregated schools, you know. This isn't really a question, but it made me think of my own family's experience, anti-blackness in my own family. I'm guessing you would agree that Seattle, like all of your books deal with gentrification and, and white flight and disinvestment and other things. But I feel like Seattle, Boston, and San Francisco have more in common with each other than Baltimore has in common with them and the ways that it manifests. But like I'm thinking about my family who are all from Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I grew up in Colorado. I had a very different Jewish experience than they did in the entire absence of a Jewish community and being very othered. But I would go visit my grandparents in Wisconsin every year growing up. And my grandparents didn't switch from into Yiddish to be racist. But a lot of what you said reminded me of my own family in the sense that I didn't know until I was an adult that Milwaukee, a city that is 40% black, is the most racially segregated city in the United States. I hadn't yet heard the Code Switch podcast episode called Why is Milwaukee so bad for black people? But I knew all the Jewish neighborhoods were now black neighborhoods and that it felt like everyone there in the city stuck to their enclaves in a way that felt really extreme to me as a kid. And I remember the rare times driving through black neighborhoods and my grandmother would narrate something like, look how terrible they keep their houses and their lawns. And I would look out the window of the car and see like perfectly well-tended middle-class homes and would be very perplexed. But we'd always get a lecture too. My sister and I each year never to marry a brown or a black person because it wouldn't be fair. It wouldn't be fair to our children who wouldn't belong to either place. But I guess I wanted to underscore this aspect of Jews who are white, because there are black Jews and Latinx Jews and Asian Jews in the United States, but Jews that are white who accepted whiteness and how that also was accepting anti-blackness. I mean, I think what was so interesting for me in working on this book was learning like a history that was entirely denied, you know, like even while that was existing right there, you know, and I think that ongoing legacy of segregation in particular, because like when I went to Baltimore, 
I went there for two reasons with my family as a kid. Like one was to visit my grandmother in Mount Washington, which is a mostly white enclave. And the other was because I was forced to go to baseball games with my father and his childhood uh, best friend in Rogers Forge, a, a white enclave, right? And and so and maybe we went to the aquarium, you know, we might want to go to the art gallery. So it's just like the rest of Baltimore didn't exist. Growing up in DC, it's the same way, you know, like like the very affluent, you know, upper Northwest was very familiar to me. The rest of DC, I didn't know at all. And I think the way that racism plays out in, played out in everyday experience of my childhood was in places you can't go, right? You can't go. And so when I was, a, you know, a teenager and I would start going to clubs and I was going to these neighborhoods where I was supposedly couldn't go. <laughs> and the idea was you would die, right? You would die. But the real fear is experience. You know, the real fear is that you will be changed by that experience, right? And I think that is the part of segregation or that segregated mentality that, like Gladys would have thought of herself as, you know, certainly liberal, right? And liberated. But at the same time, you know, we were at a gas station and a black person walks up and she locks the doors, you know? Or like, you know, but when I came to visit her when I was 20 and I wanted to explore Baltimore as a queer person. And so I took the train downtown to the gay neighborhood and she was like panicked like panicked that I was going to be killed because I was going to downtown Baltimore. Like, and that neighborhood was actually, you know, like cutesy, like little antique shops and like, <laughs> um, but it was beyond the pale, you know? And I think, so I think that legacy of segregation, which is everyday segregation, right? Which continues to this day is that's one aspect, right? And then there's the structural level, right? And that's the level one of the levels that I'm exploring in the book when I'm thinking historically, right? So thinking about the active participation of Jews in these racist systems, even as they are also being punished in certain ways, you know, by those same systems. Like that is the tragedy to me that, and the contradiction that I think should be at the center of Jewish analysis and Jewish cultural life, not the mythology that Jews were always on the side of social justice. And I mean this among, not just among like liberal mainstream Jews, but among like leftist Jews, right? Like it's not, we need it all. We need all of that history, right? It can't, we can't just be saying like, like I, I was denied the history of radical Jews too, right? I knew nothing. I knew nothing yeah. about radical Jews. I didn't either. Like, and that was a, a denial, you know, and knowing that could have helped me to understand myself and my legacy in a different way. But I can't, I don't want just that information, you know, like I need the information about how Jews have been active participants in structural racism and how that continues now and how, because how else can we ever change it? Right. And so in the book, the way it comes in is thinking, I'm thinking about Gladys's legacy, right? And how, you know, she did not choose, you know, when she was born to be part of this legacy, or even when she in the house where she grew up, right? Like when her family decided they're moving because 
I mean, I can't say why they moved, but I do know that it happened just after the neighborhood was downgraded in, you know, the redlining system and that, you know, the phrase they have on that redlining map is quotation mark, danger of Negro encroachment. And then a few years later, her family and every other white person in the neighborhood essentially moves. They just get up and leave, right? And that part of that is structural, right? It's structural. So they are victims. But part of it is they actively, but not they necessarily, but other Jews perhaps, or maybe they too, like participate, right? So Jews like both were victims of redlining and actively benefit. And I think, you know, one of the people I talk about in the book, Joseph Meyerhoff, who was the patron of this, the symphony and one of Baltimore's largest developers, like is actively enforcing not just anti-black exclusion, right? In his developments, but anti-Semitic exclusion, right? And so, because that's how he can become part of the ruling class, essentially, right? And it's like that complicity is shocking, right? Or I shouldn't even say shocking because it's typical too. It's totally typical, right? And, but that's upward mobility. And I think, so, so I understood as a child that upward mobility would, that myth of upward mobility, right? Which is upward mobility at any cost, a cost to my body, to my life, to anyone in the world. I understood it on an embodied level myself, right? I knew that myself, that I was being squashed right? That if I had to fit myself into that, that would demolish the potential for me to flourish. But I did not understand or know about these larger structural issues, right? And it's, it's all the same thing, right? And I had no idea that like, yeah, the majority, the vast majority of Baltimore Jews sided with the Confederates, the vast majority of all white people, right? Like that's, and that's why, because they were assimilating into white supremacy. There were Jews you know, Jewish business people were smuggling goods to the Confederacy, right? That was because Baltimore was under occupation, Union occupation during the Civil War. And so none of that, you know, is, did I know anything about? <laughs> like, but how could I if I didn't even know that my relatives grew up in the South, right? Yeah. Like, and uh, because the South was something that could never be talked about, even as you are there. I grew up in the South, you know what I mean? Like, D.C. is the South. <laughs> but so is Boston, right? Like, th this country is formed by that segregated mentality. Like, segregation plays out different ways in different places and different spaces. But it is what this country is formed on. Well, let's, let's hold all of that. And I, wanna, I want to, in light of it, talk about what is my favorite part of the book, which we haven't yet discussed, which I would call the speculative element of touching the art. I think of my conversation with Adrienne Marie Brown, which was about social justice and science fiction and how she said all organizing is science fiction. It's imagining and otherwise and how the imagination is essential to it. I think the most exhilarating part of your book has this element in it and as a first step to exploring that, we have a question, which is more open-ended than how I'm prefacing it, which may or may not relate to what we talk about afterwards, but it feels connected. This is a question from past Between the Covers guest Cal Angus, the author of 
A Natural History of Transition, which was a finalist for the Lambda Literary Award in Transgender Fiction, as well as the founder and managing editor of the journal Smoke and Mold that creates a space for the narrative possibilities that trans lives can bring to the intersection of nature and culture. So here's Cal's question. Hello, Matilda. This is Cal. I'm very happy to be able to ask you this question today. Your work has accompanied me through most of my adult adult life at this point. And still, each time I finish another book of yours, I feel different than I did before. My notion of what can be written down is changed by your work. So my question for you is, in what emotional place do you greet your readers? And by the end of one of your books, where do you hope they have arrived? But more importantly, where have you? What has the art done to you? Both with this book and past books, it seems to me that these are things you think about consciously while writing. But even if they're not, Maybe you can make something up. Thank you, Matilda, for another true gift with touching the art. Much love. Oh, thank you so much for that beautiful question. Um, <laughs> well, I, and I like also, David, what you said, uh, the Agent Murray Brown uh, quote, all organizing is speculative. Maybe I'll start there, actually, because I think that, I think we're taught that speculative writing is one particular thing, which is a very plot-based structure, right, usually. Um, Now, my writing is always resisting plot, right? (laughs) But isn't that speculative itself, right? But anyway, um, the question of where I start emotionally and where I end up is an interesting one. I think that, I think it's always different with, with each book, but I know that I write through loss. And I'm also writing toward connection. Those two things are probably always true, um, but have become more and more true because the things I used to rely on have no longer hold me in the same way, you know, which are organizing and friendship. But my relationship with writing and specifically writing into vulnerability has allowed for the kinds of connections that I'm always dreaming of, right? Whether that's in the moment of the writing or in the moment of the reading or in the moment of connecting with other people, connecting with these gaps, right? These, these places of loss or longing or desperation. <laughs> and, and putting it all out there. And so, and with touching the art, I think, you know, I started with that, that very specific exploration about my relationship with Gladys. And it did start with her art. And her art is something that I treasure. And that still inspires in me that, that feeling of childlike excitement. And so maybe I started in certain ways with that childlike excitement or wanting to move toward that. Because I think that's something that I was denied as a child. I could experience it in her studio, but mostly I was denied it because of being sexually abused by my father. Because my vulnerability would always be met 
with violence, right? And in connecting with him, my father, you know, the person who's supposed to be protecting me, we're taught, I think, sometimes in therapy, right? They're like, find that, that place you had as a child of, like, safety. I didn't have it. It never existed. It's not there. It is not there. So I have to imagine it somehow, right? But that's now. I did not have it. It will never be there. So in some ways, I think I'm writing. Writing is a way to experience a possibility of existing that was not possible for me. And it still exists in that place of impossibility. And I feel like I'm writing into that that impossibility of survival now, even as I'm writing, right? And in writing it, it becomes possible, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) And I love hearing that that people connect to it and it feels that way. I don't know. and I think that question of, of how do I feel at the beginning and then how do I feel at the end is a really interesting one, which I preserve in the book, right? And so, because by the end of the book, I'm like immersed in this research, right? Which is not typical of my writing, you know, because I usually am writing what I know, but I don't know the history as I'm writing the book, you know, the history of Jewish assimilation and white flight. I don't know the history of the women of abstract expressionism. I don't know the history of Baltimore, you know, until I'm doing all this research, right? And by the end, I'm just like spinning in all of it. And like, I've read seven books about Billie Holiday. I could read seven more, you know what I mean? They're fascinating. But I'm like, where do I stop? Where does it stop, right? And so so I'm just circling around and, and just noticing details, right? And like, and some of those things, like, you know, like, like that realization about Mark Bradford, right? And him even saying abstraction is emerging at the same time as, um, what, is, what does he say exactly? Um, but essentially, you know, abstraction emerging alongside the same time as structural racism. But he's, he has something very specific that I can't remember at the moment. Where is I going at that exactly? I guess just this, this, this feeling of, okay, all these things coming together, right? And all the loose ends that I could continue to pursue forever, right? A book has no ending. The book ends, but ideally a book has no ending, right? And so I think that's where it leaves me, right? With all of these possibilities. And some of them, you know, I sort of state, you know, I'm like, well, what if, what if, I'm trying to remember how, how it all comes together. So now as I'm thinking about it, <laughs> I'm like, how does it all come together? But I can, feel, I can remember little elements, you know, and, and maybe what you're talking, maybe tell me more about that speculative question because okay. I think that's going to tell me those details. Okay, so you've called this by far your most research-heavy book that it required the most research. So all this true material but I feel like the book is speculative nonfiction, not to mean that what you research and give us isn't true. And I know that nonfiction and speculative or science fictional nonfiction don't go together, but like part of the way you write black history of Baltimore in this book is straight ahead history, but it's also this beautiful gesture against, I think the inevitability of history 
the way you map black history, layering it over Gladys's history as one example, for instance, say that Freddie Gray was arrested five blocks from Gladys's childhood home, arrested for, for legal possession of a knife and then dying from injuries inflicted by the police shortly after while in custody. Or are you exploring in wonderful detail Billie Holiday's Baltimore, which, as you've said, coexists with Gladys's. But this way in which you're pushing them, I feel like you're, you're pushing them together. And part of how you do that is we get hints of a Jewish otherwise. That Who knows? Maybe that could have been an otherwise for Gladys, the, the communist Jewish school teacher who wrote the song Strange Fruit, the song Billie Holiday considered her defining signature song, the song she was punished for singing, or Cafe Society in New York City, an integrated club founded by leftist Jews and also an important venue for Holiday and other black performers, which by extension made me think of Benny Goodman, who had one of the first and certainly one of the most high-profile integrated bands. All this is real history, but by overlaying it with Gladys's, it does echo against all of these what-ifs about her own life which you extend to regarding her and the, and the artist Grace Hardigan, who you've mentioned a couple times, the most famous artist in Baltimore, a friend of Frank O'Hara, and yet they were never friends, Gladys and Grace, and yet you place their thoughts side by side with Grace saying, the difference between abstraction and nature painting was that one is working out of nature, the other into nature, and Gladys saying, that nature is art, and that's what it is. It doesn't know any boundaries. It can do anything, and it does what it wants, and it's always beautiful. And they didn't say this to each other, and yet you imagine them talking with each other in this way. What could they have learned? What could they have shared? What did they lose by not talking? And I think it all echoes back against not only what Gladys has lost by embracing bourgeois norms, but what she could have fully been and also what you and her could have fully been if she had stepped out of the constraints of family and heteronormativity and whiteness. When you read the book, you sense the love that you have, which endures of her paintings, the love of the radicalness of her approach to art. But in a way it feels like the true love you're expressing is towards this imagined otherwise she could have had. You're imagining it for us and maybe for her, that isn't science fictional in the normal sense of it, but I think it is in the way that all organizing is science fictional for Adrian Marie Brown, that you're, it's like this gift toward the future somehow, that touching the art is also, you've made these different people who didn't touch, touch. Oh, I love that so much, making these different people who didn't touch, touch. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, Grace Hardigan is fascinating. Like, I didn't know, I definitely didn't know anything about Grace Hardigan, right? And, but when I was in Baltimore and I was asking people about Gladys, and I said, well, did she ever talk about other artists? And people did, could not remember, really. But if they did remember, they always had one anecdote about Grace Hardigan. And this happened three or four times. The only person anyone ever remembered always something that she had said about Grace Hardigan and it was always 
scathing. <laughs> like completely scathing. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a relationship, right? And and I also learned from, you know, one of her students that Grace Hardigan was at the opening of, of Gladys's retrospective. And uh, that, she, that they frequently saw each other at openings. They were not friends, but they encountered one another, you know, and... And so in that experience of not friends and that scathing disapproval, I'm like, wow, well, what is there? And, and there's so many of these near misses that I will never know. Probably I will never know. Who knows? Maybe someone will approach me. I tried to get in touch with Grace Hardigan's executor who might know these details, but, you know, I don't know why exactly, but, you know, it's not someone I was able to find. <laughs> or I, I mean, I was able to talk to because the thing is about Gladys, right, and, and most women artists of that generation, or most artists, period, but their lives are not documented in the public record. Grace Hardigan has been canonized, and so her life is documented. And she kept coming up, even in me just reading, like when I first, the first book I started reading about abstract expressionism was Nine Street Women by Mary Gabriel. And this is this 800-page history where she's talking about, very specifically about five women artists, you know, and it starts with Grace Hardigan. And it starts with her having a conversation with Grace Hardigan in Baltimore. <laughs> and Grace talking about this world that she was a part of, that Mary Gabriel was like, whoa, which is the world of Jackson Pollock, you know, and William de Kooning and, um, you know, the early abstract expressionism in New York. And, and, and Mary Gabriel was like, whoa, I didn't even realize women were in that world, right? Because they, they've been removed from the history. And so... I knew that Gladys did not like Grace's work, you know, um, and that I know, you know, and, but this is Grace's later work where it became figurative. Gladys didn't like figurative work because she thought it was derivative. And Grace Hardigan was deliberately a derivative. You know, she wanted to explore the old masters, you know, through a new form, you know, and later in her later work. But I, I became fascinated by Grace Hardigan's relationship with Frank O'Hara, right? Because here is this gay poet, you know, in the, and they were, they talked every day, right? He was instrumental to her career. And she was immersed in this world of Queens, so immersed in it that, you know, in her first show, she called herself George Hardigan as a camp gesture, you know, with her gay friends who all, all had their own camp, camp name. And so I become fascinated about their relationship in a way of thinking about Gladys's relationship with Keith Martin that I will never know, right? And also thinking about Grace Hardigan as, Maybe she was not her art, but her life was like was Gladys that I thought, you know, she was an, a bohemian, an actual bohemian. Right. You know, who rejected middle class norms, moved to the village. And, I, and actually, one of the things that Gladys said, which was that she abandoned her child. And she's like, well, I could have done that, Gladys says. And, it, and I thought, oh, she's exaggerating. But Grace Hardigan did. She did abandon her child, you know, in order per, to pursue an artist's life. Right. But I start thinking, well, what it would have been like if Gladys had moved to New York with my father as a child? Like, what, what that might have been much better. Right. And so so and I so I see what you mean about the speculative aspect and thinking about because Gladys taught was one of the first people hired at the Maryland Institute College of Art, which was a very conservative institution in the moment when they decided that abstraction could be allowed into the curriculum. Right. So she was hired to teach abstraction in 1960. Now, there's only one famous person, abstract artist, like, who had taught, or one, I should say, one person who towers over all the others, and that's Grace Hardigan. And the, 
like who's always mentioned. And I was like, well, that's strange. When did she say? So she was hired the year Gladys left. <laughs> did she leave because Grace Hardigan was hired? Potentially. But so I start to think, well, what, what would it have been like for them to have been friends? Like at that school, they had opposite teaching styles. Gladys wanted people, wanted everyone to, to, to sort of like embrace their difference and did not want them to imitate her and sort of, I guess to like bring out the complications sort of in this kind of nourishing way. Now, Grace was one of these scathing critics, right? You would just rip it to shreds, right? I was like, well, what, have, what would happen if they interacted in the, in the hallways, right? Like, you know, I thought that Grace was more liberated than Gladys, but Grace, when she decided that she had found the man of her dreams who became her fourth husband, she abandoned her gay friends and left New York, wrote them letters and said, I'm leaving you, you know? I found my man, you know, because she thought she had found her, like, respectability, not, not respected, or the, the person who would support her. Now, Gladys already had that in a much lower, you know, wasn't as lavish as Grace was looking for, but she also, like, her gay friend and his lover were part of that interest. So I was like, well, what could they have learned from one another? Grace said, her art state, artist statement says, I embrace everything that is vulgar and vital in American life. She's that word vulgar, right? That was a positive thing. <laughs> and so, so I just found that fascinating. So I'm glad you found that fascinating. And I, I also think, so I do think that is a speculative aspect. And I think that history is always speculative because, you know, we can have documentation. We can, we can uh, know as much as we can know, but we can't feel it, right? The feeling is speculative, you know? And I think... I remember, you know, the, the quote from Mark Bradford that I, I, I remember now actually was he said that he felt um, unsure about abstraction in the, at a time when Pollock and Emmett Till were both on the cover of magazines, right? So Emmett Till, who was lynched, and his mother, Mamie Till, had an open casket funeral, you know, to politicize it. And this is at the same time as abstract art is being on the verge of being canonized, right? And so that's that, that, that contradiction and that impossibility. And, and so and another aspect of the speculative aspect that, you know, that you're talking about, like Billie Holiday, she was a victim of the drug war before it was the drug war, right? She was hounded to her death by the feds, right? She could have flourished, but because she was a black woman who refused the confines of a segregated world because she refused the boundaries of sexuality and gender, right? And, and because she did, because of Strange Fruit in particular, like you pointed out, you know, a song written by Abel Mirapol, uh, communist Jew, right? And this became her signature song. And, and so I wondered, did Gladys ever go to cafe society? Because she was in New York studying art at that time when Billie Holiday was performing it, right? And I can never know, um, but I can imagine, or I can wonder. And I think, you know, and so I think in the end of the book, I'm sort of, I'm in that place, right? Of like imagining and wondering, even about things that I know did not happen and could not happen, but what if, right? Yeah. Like, like what if Emmett Till was still alive today, right? And like, that seems impossible, but he would still be alive today, potentially if he had not been lynched as a child, you know? What if Billie Holiday, when she is in her hospital bed, 
You know, people say she died of addiction. She did not die of addiction. <laughs> I mean, she died. I mean, her addiction was a product of being hounded to her death, right? How could she not be an addict? How could she not? Like, what if she got out of that bed, you know? These are questions I did not have at the beginning of the book, and they're made possible through the process of writing it. Well, I love touching the art. And as a way to come to an end, I want to read a couple things that you said to Laura Mimosa Montes for The Believer, not about touching the art, but that feels connected to this dream of, of what we could be. There you say about your book, The Freezer Door, but I, I think, again, it extends into this book too. I'm searching for touch in everyday experience. Touch as a way of conjuring safety, of inhabiting a body without pain. Desire as a way of inhabiting the world in the fullest sense, beyond borders or walls, or the deadening impact of social norms. I think that desire changes the language. It breaks the form. It creates the elliptical structure, the search for language to convey what language cannot convey the way the text flips around to touch itself, the reversal of memory as a technique for opening up feeling, the rhythm of words, the flow creating its own intimacy in and out of the spaces and places that create their own forms, our bodies in these rooms, making room. And then later, one thing I realized while writing The Freezer Door is that the process of writing can be a form of embodiment. The way shaping the text changes the way you breathe or dream or imagine possibilities in the gaps where language stops. That's what I'm after. Language as a way to create more possibilities for feeling, for feeling everything. In that spirit, I was hoping we could go out with a final brief reading a memory from early in the book of you and Gladys together collaborating. Absolutely. And I love you bringing back that interview. As I was listening to you, I'm like, wait, I said that. <laughs> <laughs> it's totally true about this book too. You're right. The reversal of memory as a technique of opening up feeling, right? Yeah. And that searching for touch and everyday experience and literally touching touching, you know, the art as a modality in a sense. Yeah. And I was right, which is predictive. <laughs> it really was. <laughs> there is art in a frame, but also there is the frame of art. You put it on a black background, on a white background, on a background of color, a touch of color or the color of touch. When you hold it up in the air, you realize how strong it is. This handmade paperwork of so many delicate layers. You hold it up to the light or you place it down under the light. There is what the art does and there is what the art does to you. When I was a kid, Gladys encouraged everything that made me different. My sensitivity, creativity, softness, femininity, introspection. 
she was an abstract artist and she wanted to set me free. That's what it felt like. Once, my other grandmother brought me an instructional book on how to draw an airplane. And when I drew an airplane just like the book told me to, Gladys was horrified. I can't remember any other crime I committed as a child in her eyes. As an adult, the standards changed. And that's one of the things I'm trying to understand here. But even when I visited her after moving to San Francisco at age 19, ready to claim queerness with my body, she was ready to photograph it. Here I am with purple and green hair, standing in front of the painting where she reproduced part of a poem I wrote in high school. I'm looking at the camera like nothing can touch me. Did Gladys say, you look like a hustler, something like that, but also she photographed me with my shirt off. And I can't find the exact photos I'm looking for, or maybe they don't exist, not in the way I remember. The hustler pose must be this one where I'm leaning shirtless against the wall, hips pushed forward. But the pose from behind must have been Gladys's idea. I'm reaching up the white studio wall designed with pegboard to hang her paintings for viewing. The white wall emphasizing my painted nails, a chainmail bracelet on the left wrist, a silver phone cord wrapped around my right, green and black polyester plaid pants, combat boots. At least half of these photos are out of focus, but Gladys was always looking for the glorious mistake the perfect error, how a broken circle is still a circle, how there can be so much motion in something so still, so much depth of field in neutrals, such an individuality between the two sides of this paperwork, and so they pull you together, but also a hole ripped into the bottom right of the piece, an invitation to see the whole, a whole is greater than the parts. That's what they say. But Gladys also knew that a whole could be greater. Nothing teaches more than absence. And if I'm feeling her absence now, I'm feeling presence. My pale skin in these photos, afraid of the sun in San Francisco, I would cross the street to reach shade. Gladys, too, was afraid of the sun on her skin, but surely not the light. Thank you, Matilda. Thank you so much. This has been an incredible conversation. I love how we went in so many different directions, and I appreciate this so much. We've been talking today to Matilda Bernstein Sycamore about her latest book, Touching the Art. You've been listening to Between the Covers. I'm David Naiman, your host. Today's program was recorded at the Volunteer Powered, non-commercial, listener-sponsored, full-strength, makeshift home office of me, David Naiman. 
can find out more about Matilda's work at matildabernsteinsycamore.com. For the bonus audio archive, Matilda contributes a reading of the first chapter of her forthcoming book, Pterodactyl. This joins many readings, craft talks, conversations with translators, and more from everyone from Johanna Hedva to Banu Kapil, Christina Sharp to Dion Brand. And every supporter can join our brainstorm of future guests. And every listener supporter receives the supplementary resources with each conversation of things I discovered while preparing for the conversation, things referenced during it, and places to explore once you're done listening. Additionally, there are a variety of other potential gifts and rewards, including the bonus audio archive, the Tin House Early Readership subscription, getting 12 books over the course of a year, months before they're available to the general public, a bundle of Matilda Bernstein Sycamore's books signed by her, to a bundle of books selected by me and sent to you. You can find out more at patreon.com slash between the covers. Or if you prefer a one-time donation, you can do so by PayPal at tinhouse.com slash support. I'd like to thank the Tin House team, Elizabeth DeMeo and Elisa Ogie in the book division, Beth Steidel in the art department, Becky Kramer and Jay Nichelle in publicity, and Lance Cleland, the director of the summer and winter Tin House Writers Workshops. Finally, I'd like to thank past Between the Covers guest, poet, musician, composer, performer, and much more, Alicia Jo Rabins, for making the intro and outro for the show. You can find out more about her work, her writing, her music, her film, at aliciajo.com. A-L-I-C-I-A-J-O.com. Thank you.